Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's bizarre fact-free speech at CPAC, at the CPAC gathering over the weekend, where he won the Republican presidential nomination straw poll by a three-to-one margin over Ron DeSantis. Joining us to compare the threats to American democracy and freedom of the press posed by Trump and DeSantis is Aaron Rupa, who until recently was the associate editor for Politics and Policy at Vox and is now an independent journalist covering U.S. politics and media. He's the author of Public Notice at aaronrupa.substack.com and we'll discuss his latest articles, Trump's CPAC speech got really weird when he went off script and DeSantis's, DeSant- and DeSantis declares war on the free press. Then we'll look into the critical battle for Bakhmut in Ukraine, which has the Russians trying to draw in Ukraine's main forces that are training up on new equipment for a spring offensive. But in the meantime, Ukraine's B-team defending Bakhmut have put up a surprisingly dogged defense that has cost Russia's A-team enormous losses. Joining us is Aram Sabanian, the open source information gathering manager at the New Lines Institute, He recently studied and taught in non-proliferation and terrorism studies at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies at Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. We will discuss the tensions between the Wagner mercenaries and Russia's Ministry of Defense now out in the open. Then finally, we'll assess reports that indicate Russia may be supplying Iran with uranium for its covert nuclear weapons program, in exchange for Iranian drones and missiles, which Russia is using in its war against Ukraine. Joining us is Mark Fitzpatrick, an associate fellow and former executive director of the Washington-based America's Office of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, where he heads the International Institute for Strategic Studies Non-Proliferation and Nuclear Policy Program, focusing on proliferation challenges and on nuclear security and nuclear disarmament issues. He served as a U.S. Foreign Service officer from 1979 to 2005 with postings in Seoul, Tokyo, Wellington, Vienna, and Washington, including as acting deputy assistant secretary for nonproliferation. And his books include Asia's Latent Nuclear Powers, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, Overcoming Pakistan's Nuclear Dangers, and The Iranian Nuclear Crisis, Avoiding Worst-Case Outcomes. And joining us now is Aaron Rupa, who until recently was the Associate Editor of Politics and Policy at Vox and is now an independent journalist covering U.S. politics and media. He's the author of Public Notice at aaronrupa.substack.com, where his latest articles include Trump's CPAC speech got really weird when it went off script and DeSantis declares war on the free press. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aaron Rupa. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Aaron. Of course, Trump and DeSantis are, well, DeSantis hasn't declared yet, but he's clearly laying the groundwork, particularly with his speech out here in California before a bunch of Republican donors. So in terms of the presidential nomination on the Republican side, Trump won hands down, did he not, at CPAC in the straw poll? Yeah, he did. He won by uh, more than three to one margin over DeSantis. I think it was uh, 62% for Trump and 20% uh, for DeSantis. And then the remaining, uh, you know, whatever that would be, um, I guess uh, 18 or so percent was scattered among the other candidates. 
and that's not a surprise. Um, you know, CPAC was basically a Trump fest. Um, you know, you saw attendees with all sorts of Trump merch on. Uh, Nikki Haley was lightly jeered uh, during her speech um, when she talked about the need for mental competency tests for politicians who are over 75, which, of course, would not only include Trump, but, you know, I think a lot of the CPAC attendees were um, in that demographic as well. So that was a little bit of a uh, questionable choice to use that line at CPAC. But, of course, um, you know, she's running against Trump. And so that was part of the reason that she was jeered as well. And DeSantis wasn't there. So um, that was really, you know, an interesting thing to me was that, you know, for all of the praise and, you know, sort of the alternative histories of Trump's four years in office that was presented at CPAC, uh, DeSantis was barely mentioned. Um, the first day, I actually kept track of this as I was watching CPAC on Thursday, and DeSantis was not mentioned a single time by any of the speakers who were on the uh, the main stage and featured on the uh, C-SPAN broadcast of the event. So, he was kind of a non-entity. It was all about Trump. Um, and it wasn't surprising that Trump won the straw poll, although, you know, other polls that are more authoritative or have, you know, a, a more um, solid methodology have also shown Trump ahead. Not, granted, not by the over three to one margin that he was at CPAC, but, you know, with a, a lead in the range of about 15 percent over DeSantis. So who are these people that vote? I mean, what part of the political spectrum are they and are they basically representing the MAGA base and not the Republican Party? Although, although nowadays it's hard to distinguish between the two. Yeah, so I think this was the fifth or sixth CPAC that I've pretty much watched uh, in its entirety. I believe the first one was in, well, maybe it was even as far back as 2016. So I guess that would be more than, you know, it's more, maybe more like seven or eight years that I've been watching CPAC. And this year, um, you know, I noticed this and a lot of reporters who were, who were there, I was just watching it, you know, on uh, on streams, but, you know, some of the reporters who were there, some of whom I've been DMing with, um, were noting that this year it really seemed to be kind of a declining uh, force as an event. You know, it used to be kind of, you know, a big gathering for uh, a cross-section of the Republican Party, and it's kind of become this year especially, you know, Trump fest, and so you didn't really have the DeSantis faction represented. Um, you know, it's basically the, the part of the party, which is a very sizable part of it, but, um, you know, the, the part of the party that is still totally on board with Trump. And so these people are kind of grassroots activists. Um, you know, they're not necessarily your normal uh, primary voter, although, you know, I think that um, it's going to be cha challenging for DeSantis to win in a primary against Trump if he can't win some support from the part of the party uh, that goes to CPAC, you know, the activist base. And so, um, you know, that's kind of a, it's an interesting question what the overlap is between CPAC attendees and how representative they really are of the broader Republican electorate. Um, but, you know, as, as we talked about earlier, um, the, the straw poll that did CPAC certainly skewed more heavily toward Trump than other polling has. But it wasn't, you know, t totally out of step with what polling is showing that Trump is probably ahead on DeSantis. But, you know, again, um, we're, you know, it's basically a year until votes are actually cast any of these primary states. So a lot can change between now and then. And I think, you know, as far as DeSantis goes, I mean, Trump, uh, during his lengthy speech uh, on Saturday at CPAC, did not mention DeSantis, didn't attack him or anything like that. And DeSantis has been kind of holding his fire, too. And I think part of that is just that we're so early in the process that going negative at this point, I think, would be hard to sustain for a full year. So but my sense is that DeSantis probably understands that if he's going to run and try to defeat Trump, he's going to have to go negative at some point. And um, Ian, you alluded to the speech that he gave in California. I just saw clips of that. 
But, you know, the part that I did see, um, he was talking about how there's been no leaks from his administration in Florida. And, you know, kind of the subtext there was that, you know, it's a big contrast with Trump. And, you know, a couple of times during speeches, he has, uh, when Trump has come up, has mentioned, you know, his overwhelming victory in Florida last November and kind of tacitly contrasted that with Trump, of course, losing in 2020. And so I think that's going to ultimately probably be DeSantis's most effective argument. It's just the straightforward, I'm a winner and Trump is a loser argument. Um, but, you know, if, if he went there now, that'd be a tough, you know, a year out from the votes actually being cast. I think uh, maybe you save that for when, um, you know, we're a little bit closer to, to prime time for the primary. Um, but that was one thing that really struck me because, of course, Trump's campaign has gone as far as to accuse DeSantis of being involved in grooming, you know, drinking with underage uh, girls when uh, I believe he was a teacher down in Florida at one point. Um, so they've really kind of gone hard on trying to demolish DeSantis, but uh, and Trump has done that himself on Truth Social. But it was notable that in his speech, uh, he basically entirely ignored DeSantis and talked about Biden, talked about his own legal problems, all sorts of pretty much everything under the sun other than uh, the contenders that he's running against in this primary. So, Aaron, let's talk a little bit about some of the wild claims that Trump has made in his two-hour rambling speech. The most outrageous one of all, of course, at least to my mind, was when he said, we had the greatest job history of any president ever. <laughs> the truth of the matter, he's had probably the worst job history. Now, you can blame it on COVID, but the, but the facts speak for themselves. Yeah, and you know, it's challenging for me covering these speeches because I've, I've covered so much Trump that it can be, uh, some of these claims are so repetitive that he makes that to me, they don't even really stand out. But if, if you're not watching Trump all the time, you know, something like what you just mentioned with him lying about his jobs record, he does that so often that to me, that's just kind of a nothing comment. But, um, you know, if you kind of dip in and hear that, then of course, we all know that Trump, I think, was the first president since Herbert Hoover to leave office with net job loss, with there being fewer jobs in the country than when he took office. And so, you know, that factoid kind of speaks for itself. But of course, if you are of the the MAGA mindset, basically, you just don't count anything that happened after COVID hit. And um, that was a refrain throughout CPAC this year. And of course, it's been a refrain for years now that you know, everything was great until, uh, as Trump puts it, the China virus uh, in a very derogatory way. But until that hit, and then that kind of ruined everything. Um, although even, you know, Trump will still tout the stock market gains that happened during that period as evidence that the economy maybe wasn't as bad as people remember it being in 2020 and into early 2021. But yeah, I mean, you know, he, he lied about his uh, jobs record. Um, as I noted, he he mused about the possibility of Russia blowing up the NATO, the NATO headquarters in Belgium. Um, you know, he had this weird policy idea for baby bonuses, which he seemed to be excited about because he viewed this as being an incentive for men to get laid, basically, which was a very kind of off-putting comment. Um, and so the stuff that's in the teleprompter are kind of the lies that we're all familiar with. And the theme of the piece that I wrote in my newsletter is that Oftentimes, it's the little things that he says as aside that are not in the teleprompter that can be kind of the most interesting. But I might be biased about that because, again, I watch pretty much all of Trump's speeches. So the stuff that's in the teleprompter, I've heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times because his material barely ever changes. So since you've watched him so much, do you think that he believes the lies or he can't make any distinction between truth and lies because... He's sort of basking in the glow of his own greatness. 
boy. You know, it's so hard to get into his head. I mean, the other one, of course, that comes to mind that I probably should mention my last response is when he accused Biden of, quote, hiding the border wall, um, the new line as he tries to tell people that he actually built the wall during his presidency, even though, of course, he didn't is that he had it all ready to be installed along the border, and then Biden somehow hid this. So Arizona and Texas could not actually install it. So does he actually believe that? You know, I doubt it. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I view it. I, I'm more on the wavelength that I think he's trying to manipulate people and he knows better, but, you know, he's willing to say, say and do anything that it will take for him to get what he wants, which in this case, of course, is to return to power. So, you know, it's hard to psychoanalyze the guy, but um, it, it's tough for me as a journalist trying to cover these speeches because they're so chock full of lies that if you try to do some sort of comprehensive fact check, I mean, you'd spend probably a month, uh, you'd have to go through basically sentence by sentence um, because almost every sentence contains some sort of untruth or lie. And so that's why I chose for my purposes to just kind of hone in on a few different things that he said. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's you know part of the strategy is it's such a, I think as Steve Bannon put it, you know, it, it's, what did he say, pipeline of bullshit or something like that? Um, you know, it, it's that sort of approach to just kind of overwhelm people with lies. And um, it becomes exhausting just to try to keep track of them. So what was the most outrageous ad lib to your mind? Well, to me, it was the one you know, that I mentioned earlier where he, where he was musing about the possibility that Russia would blow up the NATO headquarters in Belgium. Um, you know, his point when he was saying this, was that NATO shouldn't have spent so much money on the glass headquarters that they have in Brussels. They should have actually built a bunker because uh, at, any, at any point Russia could attack and that would be the end of that building. And, you know, of course, um, in theory, we're supposed to, you know, we're part of NATO, of course, and these are supposed to be our allies. And of course, Russia is not our ally. But, you know, uh, Trump, um, you know, it's not, it's not news at this point that he has a lot of sympathy for uh, dictators, for strongmen. Uh, but I just thought an American president kind of giving voice to that idea and, you know, not even seeing, seeming particularly bothered by that. I mean, almost seeming to view it as like a just outcome for NATO, who he's still railing against for, you know, in his mind, not doing enough to support Ukraine and kind of leaving the U.S. to foot the bill. Um, I just thought giving voice to something like that in, you know, in a speech of that sort at a time in the in the war where Ukraine can use all the help that it can get and, you know, with some of the commentary that Trump provides, it certainly gives Putin a good reason to try to hold out through the 2024 presidential election, because I think it's pretty clear that if Trump wins, um, you know, one of the first things that will be affected is aid to Ukraine. And, you know, that can help bring the war to a, a you know, a very bad outcome for Ukraine and a good one for Putin. Well, Trump is on a number of occasions has said that Putin didn't want to go to war and that Biden forced him into the war, that, that Biden's responsible for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He yeah, didn't the, say the, that the again, he did he? Did... The... No, he didn't. I mean, the, the way that he talks about it is just in, you know, insisting that if he was president, it never would have happened, that he could have brought the parties to the negotiating table. You know, And then, of course, he talks about how he's the only president of the 21st century where Russia did not... Um, attack another country when he was in office, which I guess is true as far as it goes. But of course, Trump's approach to Putin was total appeasement. And so when you put it in that context and think about what that would have looked like had Trump tried, you know, had Trump been president and tried to oversee some sort of negotiations, I mean, it seems pretty obvious that it would have basically been giving Putin everything that he wanted, probably, you know, Eastern Ukraine and Crimea, you know, and formalize that as part of Russia. It's hard to imagine that that negotiation would have been satisfactory for Ukraine or for supporters of democracy, you know, internationally. And so 
um, you know, he, he, it's not like he really advances any sort of detailed, um, you know, any, any sort of detailed account of how the war began or explanations. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's a series of talking points that he uses, but, um, you know, it's quite clear from the total of his commentary that, um, you know, if, if he was elected president and did try to oversee some sort of negotiation, it would basically be cutting off aid to Ukraine, which, of course, he already tried to do in 2019 when he was president and ended up being impeached for it and basically giving Putin everything that, you know, he, he could ever want. And so um, that's you know, going to be a dynamic, I think, as we head into the 2024 campaign is that, you know, certainly Putin, um, more so than ever, has uh, a lot of reason to root for Trump and to root for Republicans to have success. And so, like I mentioned earlier, I think that provides a, a major incentive for him to try to drag out the war, at least through November of next year. So, Aaron Rupan, let's talk a little about your other piece at your Substack, Public Notice, at aaronrupa.substack.com. DeSantis declares war on the free press. Of course, Trump doesn't like the press at all, the enemy of the people, after all, which is what he's said on a number of occasions. But Trump wants to change the libel laws to protect the powerful and the guilty. So that's pretty bad. So how much worse is DeSantis? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of the lead to the piece is that, you know, Trump uh, talked a big game about wanting to loosen libel laws, but never really made any moves toward that. And, you know, here you see DeSantis actually trying to walk the walk in terms of uh, passing legislation that would have a huge chilling effect on coverage of his administration. Uh, there's a bill, a Republican bill in the Florida House uh, that seems like it's likely to, uh, you know, be signed into law, passed through legislature and signed into law eventually that with both, um, as I detail in the piece, and the, the piece itself is by Lisa Needham, uh, I edited it, but um, it would you know, have a huge chilling effect on the use of anonymous sources because it would create a presumption that if an anonymous source is the basis for a report, um, that you know, basically someone who is, if it's a government agency that is accused of some sort of misconduct, if a reporter uses anonymous source, that agency could come back with a lawsuit and hold reporters liable. And then, you know, the burden would be on the reporter to try and verify the claim that was made. And so it would really kind of have uh, the effect of eradicating the use of anonymous sources in the way that, of course, with the Pentagon Papers, you know, stories like that, or even Watergate uh, are so central to reporting of that sort of basic accountability work. And then another part of the bill would require bloggers who cover DeSantis to register with the state. And so, you know, it would kind of create this directory um, and, you know, make it very easy for officials to kind of oversee and possibly interfere in the work that reporters are doing to cover DeSantis. And so, um, you know, the, the idea here clearly is to have a major chilling effect to basically turn government into a black box where there is very little uh, accountability for alleged misconduct. And so, um, you know, it, it's kind of hard to believe that in the United States, um, such laws could be constitutional. And I'm sure there will be a if these are passed and signed into law, legal challenges to them. Uh, but as the piece also gets into, you know, the right-wing block on the Supreme Court um, has seemed quite sympathetic uh, to positions like the one that's being staked out by Puerto Republicans down there. And so I don't think it's a slam dunk at all that these laws would be overturned on appeal. And so, um, you know, th there's actually a lot of difference. This one bill has a lot of different facets to it, but the long and short of it is that it would basically eradicate the use of anonymous sources in reporting and also uh, require bloggers who are covering DeSantis to register with the state. So uh, pretty scary stuff. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Aaron, I mean, in other words, Trump 
muses about changing the libel laws but hasn't done anything. But whereas this guy, DeSantis, is moving fast ahead to change the relationship with the press uh, in ways that are incredibly much more dangerous and setting really bad examples in the Supreme Court may ultimately support some of what he's doing, but he has a super majority. So there's no question this is going to go ahead, right? Yeah, I mean, there's no, you know, the, the Florida legislature has basically become a rubber stamp for DeSantis. Um, they're in the middle of a legislative term right now. And of course, there's been news on a variety of fronts uh, with laws that are being passed uh, down there that are, you know, far right laws that um, you know, DeSantis uh, supports them and the legislature um, is basically in lockstep with DeSantis. So, you know, if, if they want to pass this, um, there will be nothing stopping Republicans on there from doing it with the majorities that they have in both chambers of the legislature. And so then it just becomes, of course, the question of whether the law ends up surviving appeals. Um, but as the piece gets into the relevant courts in Florida, where an appeal would be heard are right-wing courts. And then, of course, the Supreme Court is a right-wing court at this point. So um, that's kind of the situation that we face is that, um, you know, if we're looking for the courts to save us, uh, the courts have been pretty... Uh, stacked with uh, Trump supporters and Republicans, you know, especially during, of course, Trump's tenure. So um, it's hard to have a lot of faith that um, even you know, if there was an appeal, that, that it would have any chance of success. Well, Aaron Ripper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. And again, I'll be speaking with Aaron Rupert, who until recently was the associate editor for Politics and Policy at Vox and is now an independent journalist covering U.S. politics and media. He's the author of Public Notice at AaronRupert.substack.com, where his latest articles include Trump's CPAC speech got really weird when he went off script and DeSantis declares war on the free press. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the critical battle for Bakhmut in Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Aram Shabanian, who is the Open Source Information Gathering Manager at New Lines Institute. He recently taught in Nonproliferation and Terrorism Studies at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies at Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aram Shabanian. Thank you for having me on today. Well, thanks for joining us, Aram. And I understand from people I've talked to uh, that know about the military situation in Ukraine 
that this critical battle for Mahmoud, which is underway now, and latest indications are that the Russians may be closing in on the last exit that the Ukrainian military has. But I understand that there's a broader strategy on the part of the Ukrainians who are holding back their main force, uh, which is in training with this new equipment for a big spring offensive. Uh, But the Russians are hoping to draw that force into the war to come to the rescue, if you will, of the sort of Team B that's been doing this surprisingly dogged defense, which apparently has cost the Russians, and I would call them the A-team in as much as they're the best that they've got left, they've caused them enormous losses. So is is that an accurate uh, assessment? Absolutely, yeah. Um, And I mean, what we're seeing on the Ukrainian side is you know, Ukrainian reserves going up against, like you said, what's left of the most elite of the Russian forces, uh, and then Wagner PMC mercenaries and uh, penal battalions. Uh, but what's been telling is, honestly, the the tanks that we've seen going into battle on the Russian side. It's been everything from T-62 tanks, which were obsolete by the 1980s, so that's pretty telling that they're pulling up all their reserves, but also T-90 tanks, which are among their most effective tanks and their newest tanks being driven by people who, according to their social media profiles, were concrete truck drivers a year ago. And so not the best soldiers going into action, but using some of the best equipment and some of the worst equipment, which shows it's kind of an an all-hands-on-deck approach from the Russians um, along three axes of advance, um, namely, but but Bakhmut is the main axis of advance. Yes. But I've also heard reports that the Russians are fighting the Ukrainians with shovels. Is that to be believed? Yeah, I mean, the the, the fighting has is, is gotten... It's very close quarters battles. The, the entire city of Bakhmut has been destroyed, or most of it's been destroyed. Um, and it follows the, the pattern of some of the other close quarters battles that have taken place in, in Donetsk, uh, Oblast. Uh, in the sense that the entire city is destroyed by both sides seeking to deny the other side cover, and so it becomes a battle of hand-to-hand combat in basements, you know, for multiple yards a day. Um, very World War II, World War One looking, you know, with all the trees shredded and the, the houses destroyed, and it just, it looks, it's just a scene of destruction. Um, and so you can imagine fighting over that kind of territory uh, between two forces, one of which is using you know, effectively not human wave assaults because that's a bit of a misnomer, but the, the Wagner PMC uh, mercenaries are being sent in with little regard for their own safety and survival. So it's not quite a human wave assault like the Iran-Iraq war, but it, it is effectively against the Ukrainians who are trying to preserve lives. And so that's why the battle is kind of ground down. In addition to the weather, um, this is a most modern wars are wars of maneuver. And with the ground too muddy to maneuver much, the Ukrainians are kind of bogged down, which plays to the strengths of the Russian military, being that it can mass artillery and firepower. So what's the latest then in terms of whether the Ukrainians are going to withdraw from Bakhmut? It looks like a withdrawal is steadily underway, but they're withdrawing a block at a time, basically. It looks like they're pulling their forces out and making sure everybody can get out while also costing the Russians for every every block they take in that city. And I mean, as much as it looks like the Ukrainians have, have fought over nothing, what they've done is they've denied the Russian army the advance on Kramatorsk and Slavyansk for seven months. 
And that's seven months of time to prepare those two cities for, for a siege, but also seven months to evacuate civilians. Seven months against the Russian army, that's that's commendable. I mean, that, that's extraordinary, considering the odds that most people gave the Ukrainian military early in this war. And are they booby-trapping and leaving mines to slow down the Russian advance? That I don't know. Um, I imagine they're leaving conventional mines. I don't know if they're doing booby-trapping. I would hope not. Um, but it's war. I imagine they probably are. I just can't confirm or deny that. Right. But let's talk then about, we mentioned earlier, that the Russian strategy is to hope to draw in the reserves, which are a part of the f big force that's training up on new equipment for a spring offensive. And that clearly that strategy has failed. But what is the status of the main force, the more professional force, as opposed to the reserves? Reservists who are doing an extraordinary uh, job in terms of defending Bakhmut. My understanding has always been that the West and NATO keep promising equipment, but it takes them ever to make up their minds and then ship it. And for example, we apparently promised them the Abrams tanks, even though they're not suitable for the Ukrainian military, in order to get the Germans off the dime. And the Abrams tanks won't get there for months. So what kind of new equipment are they getting, and particularly in terms of ammunition? Because I understand that they're, they're running out of howitzer shells. Yeah, so in terms of larger equipment, they have started receiving the Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, and they've started training up on those, um, according to photos released by the Department of Defense. Um, but with regards to artillery shells, small arms, things like that, uh, the U.S. is really kind of pulling out all the stops to get uh, manufacturing underway in NATO states to try to get uh, stockpiles of these shells available. The problem is a lot of the shells the, the Ukrainians are using are former Soviet bloc uh, weaponry. And so until NATO can send enough of their howitzers with, with NATO-style shells uh, to the Ukrainians, there's going to be a bit of a deficit. Um, it's led to some creative solutions uh, seizures of Iranian weapons in, in the Persian Gulf have been given to the Ukrainians, which, you know, ob absolutely runs counter to what Iran would want. Um, but more recently, Serbian-made artillery, Soviet bloc-style artillery made in Serbia has started appearing in Ukraine. And I find it hard to believe that Serbia would willfully uh, contribute that to Ukraine's defense. Um, yeah. So how, how are they getting it then, Aram? It's a roundabout agreement through um, that NATO is kind of working. So I, I believe with this one, it was Canada paid Serbia to manufacture the shells for another third party who then sold it to the Czech Republic, who then gave it to Ukraine or something of that nature. Basically, you know, every trick in the book to, to get these shells to Ukraine, which shows the lengths that the West is willing to go to to support Ukraine. And I guess that's that's kind of the point with, with the tanks, with the artillery, with the Western weapons is, while they haven't made a battlefield appearance yet, the fact that they will and the fact that they exist is what's scary to the Russians because as long as the Ukrainian crews can survive being hit by Russian shells, which they can in Western tanks, the Ukrainians can continue to turn those crews back around and send them back out onto the battlefield. So there aren't enough of the Leopard tanks then? I thought they'd only got about 30 so far. So far. But what they represent is a lasting Western commitment to Ukraine. And so, in theory, down the road, 
if Ukraine fields those 30 leopards and five of them get taken out in an offensive, I think the idea is that it's easier for the West to replace those five leopards than it would be for them to replace T-72s. And then those leopards are more likely to protect the lives of the crew within them than a T-72 would be. So it's kind of akin to uh, the 1973 Arab-Israeli war where the Egyptians quickly learned that the Israelis could get airlifted supplies from the United States uh, in an almost endless capacity, which sapped their will to fight, because if the enemy can keep surviving being hit and come back in a better tank every time, what's the point? Meanwhile, the Russians are, like I said, scraping the bottom of the barrel tank-wise and crew-wise. So as the Russians continue to dwindle in their skills and their capabilities, the Ukrainians only get stronger. So one of the things that seems to indicate that things are really falling apart on the Russian side is this open hostility between the Wagner Group's head, Prigozhin, and the Ministry of Defense. Now, there's been a long-standing sniping and trash-talking, I guess you could describe it, from Prigozhin and from Igor Gherkin, this horrible guy that was behind the shooting down of the Malaysian airliner, uh, is with the Donetsk uh, People's Republic, or whatever they call their proxy force, and the military bloggers that seem to have traction in the Russian media, they've been trashing the MOD for the longest time. Now, Shoigu is not a military guy, so he's a bit of a joke, isn't he? But what's the latest where Pogosin's going public and saying they're not supplying us with any ammunition and they're cutting us off? So how could he be conducting these offensive with these prison battalions if uh, that's true? What I think we're seeing with the Russian military it's starting from, I mean, it started with the Russian Navy, really, after the loss of Moskva last year, and then it rapidly spread to the Air Force, and I think it's spreading to the Army. And it's part of Shoigu's ch implemented uh, changes that he did to the Russian military is that he professionalized it a lot. Now, he's not, a, he's not a military man himself, but he ran the Ministry of Emergency Situations, and he ran it very well. And so in order to do that, he, he cleaned up shop, he cleaned up the corruption. He got rid of all the yes-men, or a lot of the yes-men at lower levels, your lower-level officers within the Russian military. That is to say, as they realized more and more that their war was going poorly and that their odds of winning this war decreased, I think what we're seeing among the professional Russian military, starting, like I said, with the Navy and the Air Force, is a realization that, that this is not worth it. This is not worth dying for. So you put in a token effort. You drop your bombs from you know high altitude, you spray bullets off toward the enemy, but you don't really put your heart into it because you know you're not going to win at the end of the day versus these Wagner guys who are in it for – they're fighting for their freedom. These are penal battalions that they'll go back to a Russian prison if they don't win or they'll be killed. So I think that definitely plays into it. I think that while Putin is still in the mindset that he can win this, that he can pull some off some, some last-minute change – I think a lot of professional military officers have realized the writing on the wall. Um, and, I mean, that really showed itself on the anniversary of the war, right, where the Russians were threatening this massed aerial bombardment. They moved all their bombers to the borders of Ukraine, and then there really wasn't much. And I think that was the pilots saying, I'm not throwing my life away for, right. for so just a gesture. So this would indicate, though, Aram, that the professional military and what's left of it aren't on, really on board with Putin. So is there any possibility of a coup against him if they, if they want to hold on to what they've got left? Um, I, I honestly can't speak to that. I mean, I, an attempt wouldn't be out of the question whether or not it would be successful. I can't speak to. Uh, I think at this point, everyone's just very afraid of everybody else within the Russian state. 
and so that makes it very difficult to plot anything. Um, but I think if we saw Ku, I don't know, didn't necessarily think they'd seize the radios and broadcast the nation. I think it'd be something akin to Vladimir is very sick and he needed to step down, you know, something like that. Um, I don't think it's out of the question, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't bank on it at the moment. And have you heard anything about rumors that I've heard that the Ukrainians managed to um, poison Hadirov, the horrible Chechen warlord? I've heard the rumors. I can't confirm them. I know he's had kidney issues, and then the recent photos of him, he looks uh, kind of plump, but I don't know if that's just been photoshopped or not. Um, I think we'll, we'll find out. So just in closing then, what's your prognosis about this war? I mean, Putin's making it clear that he's in it for the long haul. He's not interested in any peace plans or peace discussions. But you're telling us that the military is, is their last hurrah, if you will, in Bakhmut, and it's not going well. So is the cupboard bare? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what we're going to see, especially in the next couple months, as the as the ground dries out in Ukraine, and as it moves from from spring to late spring to summer, we're going to see the Ukrainians go back on the offensive against the Russians. And I think that so long as the Ukrainians don't cross into Russian territory. I think they will have a pretty easy time pushing back once their elite forces come into battle. Now, that being said, there's an asterisk next to the word Russian territory, right? Because we don't know if the Russians will regard the Donbass and Crimea as their actual territory or if that's just rhetorical. And that's important, one, with regards to nuclear weapons and also with regards to how f tough the Russians are going to fight how much they really believe that this is their land. Because if the Russians believe that their land is, at th is being threatened, I think an entirely different beast would rear its head. And I think that that's still a potent weapon. But at this point, the only game changer would be China coming in on to help Russia out, right? Yeah, and I mean, there's been some... Some discuss some rumors floated that the Chinese are going to send ammunition to the Russians, but in terms of like overt military involvement, I don't see it as something that would happen um, unless China felt very compelled to do so by um, either American actions elsewhere or by you know the Russians could nuclear blackmail if you don't help us, we're gonna use a nuclear weapon. And I don't know if that would work with the Chinese or not. But it's a potential route toward that. Um, but that would definitely be a game changer. Well, Aram Shabanian, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Aram Shabanian, who's the Open Source Information Gathering Manager at New Lines Institute. He recently taught in Nonproliferation and Terrorism Studies at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies at Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. We're going to take a brief station break and assess the reports that indicate Russia may be supplying Iran with uranium for its covert nuclear weapons program in exchange for Iranian drones and missiles. Watch out. I'm gonna explode. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mark Fitzpatrick, an Associate Fellow for Strategy, Technology, and Arms Control, and the former Executive Director of the Washington-based America's Office of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, as well as former head of the Institute's work on nonproliferation. He served as a U.S. Foreign Service Officer from 1979 to 2005, with postings in Seoul, Tokyo, Wellington, Vienna, and Washington, including as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Nonproliferation. And his books include Asia's Latent Nuclear Powers, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, Overcoming Pakistan's Nuclear Dangers, and The Iranian Nuclear Crisis, Avoiding Worst-Case Outcomes. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mark Fitzpatrick. Happy to be here, Ian. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Mark. And there are reports coming out of Europe now. We know that Russia has made arms deals with uh, Iran, and Iran is supplying drones and missiles. But now there are reports that there may be a quid pro quo where in exchange for the Iranian drones and missiles, which clearly the Russians need uh, in their war against Ukraine, that uh, the Russians may be supplying uranium to Iran. Um, So what do you make of those reports? Yeah, there may be a... a Sounds like there's there's probably some kernel of uh, of truth in there. This uh, this report is coming from a, a reporter whose uh, you know past work has been very I would say biased against Iran, and uh, and tends to be sole source um, reporting. Uh, but what I make of it, Ian, is that um, Russia may be saying that if the Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, if that uh, is totally abandoned, then the enriched uranium that Iran sent to uh, Russia in 2005 would be sent back. That that sounds like what, what's the nub of this. And whether that's related to um, Iran's supply of drones or not, I I think you know, Iran is, is being paid for those drones uh, it, with cash. So I'm not, I'm not sure that this uranium transfer is, is part of that. It, it, it could be. Yeah, I can say more about it if you'd like. Well, we know that Russia has built the Boucher civilian nuclear reactor. They they do have ties, do they not? Oh, they have. Yes, they've got extensive ties. Uh, as you say, um, Russia stepped in to rebuild the Boucher nuclear reactor that had been originally started by Germany and that was bombed by uh, Iraq and uh, so, yeah, there's there's an extensive nuclear cooperation. And then Russia um, was part of the deal in 2015 um, under which uh, Iran uh, cut back its nuclear program and accepted inspectors. And as part of that, Russia um, became the depository for uh, most of Iran's stockpile of enriched uranium. So as I say, um, what what may be the nub of the report in the Fox News report is that uh, I- Russia would send that enriched uranium back to Iran if the deal totally fell apart. Well, I've been hearing reports, and I'm sure you have, Mark, from Israel and Israeli intelligence for the longest time saying the Iranians are, you know, months away from a nuclear weapon, months away. They have enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon, etc., And on Tuesday, a top U.S. Defense Department official told the Congress that Iran's, the Iranian regime could develop enough fissile material for a nuclear bomb 
in a mere 12 days. So walk us through why that is credible information and what kind of uh, situation they're in in terms of fissile material. So I'm glad that you've differentiated between the time it would take to produce the fissile material for a nuclear weapon and the time it would take to build a nuclear weapon because the fissile material is only part of it. And uh, actually um, taking the fissile material, putting into the form of a bomb, adding the physics package to make it go boom and so forth. Israel itself says that could all take another two years. But the, the 12 days is a, a kind of a simple calculation that's based on how much enriched uranium Iran has produced to date as verified by the IAEA. We, we know how much that is and how, how many centrifuges they have operating, the efficiency of those centrifuges. And so you, you, you do the math and um, you take the stockpile of enriched uranium that Iran has today and uh, enrich it further to 90%, which is weapons grade, and uh, Iran could produce a weapons worth, well, the Defense Department said 12 days. I've Others who have calculated it say seven days, some say even less than seven days. But it's, yeah, it's a matter of days. And that's that's pretty worrisome. It used to be a year when the when the Iran nuclear deal was done in 2015. The 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 guy, the benchmark was that it would have it would Iran would take a year to be able to produce the fissile material for a nuclear weapon because President Trump pulled out of the deal and Iran then ramped up its program. Now they're down to 12 days or maybe less. So in 2021, they've had weapon-grade material of 60%. But since 2021, apparently there's been a discovery of some enriched uranium at 84% purity, not 90%, which is weapon-grade, but it's getting close. What do you make of that? Yeah, I was pretty worried about um, hearing that report that that Iran had produced 84% enriched uranium. Iran insisted that they had not purposely done that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, they may be right about that. But what they are right about is that they haven't stockpiled any um, enriched uranium over 60%. So this 84% um, uranium that the IEA found, you know, they're very good at finding even minute quantities of, of material like that. That may, have, that, you know, that may well have been an aberration. Um, and uh, so it's not that Iran is now purposely, is not stockpiling 84%. That's, that's the key takeaway here. Uh, it's, it's, it's worrisome enough that they're doing 60%, which is, is very close to 90. It, is not, it doesn't take that much more to, to get it from 60 to 90. But how could you make 84% pure weapons-grade U-235 <laughs> uh, do it by accident? I mean, that doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, I didn't think, I didn't think it made um, much sense either. But I think, that, I think the way it happens is that um, Iran is um, still new at the game of enriching to, to high levels. And it, um, in, in producing 60%, and feeding, you know, material into the centrifuges, they, um, you know, things might not have gone exactly according to plan. And, and some of the output is less than 60%, and some of it may be over 60. Well, it was over 60%. It's, it's, it's not that um, outrageously surprising to me. Uh, I was worried about it, but the more I looked at it and heard experts talk about it, 
it's it seems like it was an anomaly that can be explained. So when you say, Mark Fitzpatrick, that having bomb-grade material, ACU, highly enriched uranium, is not the be-all and end-all. you still got to get the bomb together, and that may take between a year and two. My understanding is that A.Q. Khan gave or sold, I assume, plans for a Chinese-designed nuclear weapon that Pakistan had tested. Do you have any information in that regard? I I think that may well be true. Um, What we know for a fact is that A.Q. Khan sold a a weapons designed to Libya. And we know that because IEA inspectors who went there and, and, and U.S. Um, uh, experts came back with that um, bomb design. It was in a, it was in a, <laughs> a dry cleaner uh, shopping bag. Um, you know, that's how it was stored, you know, so securely. And uh, if, if A.Q. Khan sold it to Libya, it stands to reason that he sold it to Iran. And um, David Albright uh, from the uh, Institute for Science and International Security has written... Um, uh, about uh, his sources telling him that uh, Iran, in fact, did get uh, such a design and maybe even even a more uh, sophisticated bomb design from A.Q. Khan. So having the design is one thing, but then um, putting, you know, going from, from two dimensions to three dimensions is, is another matter. And that's why Israeli uh, experts say it could take up to two years. David Albright, who is pretty knowledgeable, says six months, maybe, if they if they go at it, um, uh, you know, fast as possible and, and maybe skipping some of the safety steps. But it would be a uranium bomb, not, and that was, of course, the, the Hiroshima bomb was a uranium bomb, right? Yes, that's right. There are two paths to a nuclear weapon, uh, highly enriched uranium that was uh, used over Hiroshima, and then plutonium is the other uh, path, and that's what was used uh, in, in Nagasaki. And most countries that have produced nuclear weapons have gone down both paths for, for redundancy. Iran's path is uh, to, to have the capability for a highly enriched uranium bomb. They did have a research reactor they were building at Iraq that um, the design that they had been um, working with would have produced uh, weapons-grade plutonium. And as part of the Iran nuclear deal, um, Iran agreed to change the design of that reactor so it wouldn't produce plutonium. And so far, they've stuck with that part of the the deal. That's one of the few parts of the deal that Iran is still honoring. Um, but they're pursuing this highly enriched uranium path uh, as a, as their main uh, nuclear hedging strategy. But earlier, Mark, you said that the eighty four percent enriched highly enriched uranium that was discovered by IEA inspectors. The fact that it was discovered by IEA inspectors is, is key, right? And my understanding is that those inspectors are not going in there anymore. Is that true? Or that well, oh, yeah, so let's let's unpack that. Um, again, there's a kernel of a, of, a, of a truth there, but the I, so the IEA is going into the main enrichment facilities at Natanz and Fordow. They are going, um, they're inspecting regularly. The question is how often are they going in? Are they going in frequently enough? And that's, my concern is that it's not frequent enough given the um, the number of centrifuges Iran is using, the uh, high uh, 
efficiency of those centrifuges, their ability to produce 90% enriched uranium so quickly, the IEA needs to have a more um, frequent visits to those uh, sites. And I don't know exactly how how frequent it is. One, um, one of the things that IEA Director General Rafael Grossi discussed with Iranian officials this past weekend, and which was reported um, in the last um, two days, is that Iran had agreed to increase the frequency of the inspections. One report was, you know, Grossi said they had agreed to in- increase it, the, the, the frequency by 50%, but then when the number came out, it was less than 50%. Um, but you, you said that, well, uh, you thought that inspectors weren't going to some places, and, and, and that's true insofar as inspectors are not now going to see the centrifuge production facilities. And seeing the centrifuge production facilities is not required by the basic safeguards agreement. It's required by the JCPOA, that 2015 Iran nuclear deal. And that's what Iran is not abiding by, the extra monitoring that was part of that deal. And of course, it was Trump that uh, pulled the U.S. out of that deal, and yep. Biden's yep. gone back into it. I mean, one of the stupidest trying things. trying to go back into it, but uh, yeah, exactly. And, and they haven't been able to get it done. Right. And whose fault is that? Uh, I think it's Iran's fault. I, I think most of the fault is Iran's. I think that um, uh, the United States and the other parties. Uh, to the JCPOA, the three France, three European countries, France, Britain, and Germany, and then the European Union, uh, and then France, uh, China, and Russia, they had hammered out the basis for an agreement to go back into the deal a year ago, almost a year ago, um, in, 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 in June uh, 2022. And uh, uh, then, what was it earlier than that? Anyway, but Iran... Um, wasn't that interested in it. And uh, again, last August, uh, the EU um, helped to um, persuade other parties to make some concessions, some compromises, and Iran was presented with what the EU said was the final deal, and it met most of what Iran's earlier demands had been. And we thought, okay, good. Now it's now ready to to resume the deal. But then Iran came up and said, well, not so fast. We've got a couple of other conditions here. And they presented conditions that were just unacceptable. So uh, the answer to the question, who's to blame? I think it's Iran. I think Iran either is, um, you know, playing a game of chess, that, thinking that they're going to, you know, get some concessions that were not possible, or maybe Iran, hardliners in the Iran system don't want a deal and um, and posed a demands that they knew weren't going to work. And, uh, and, and so they, they killed the deal for their own political purposes. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Mark, I mean, we know that Trump undid everything that had Obama's name on it in a kind of childish, petulant Exactly. Day. This was Obama's deal, and therefore right. it was the worst deal ever. Right, but, there were, but he was also pressured and encouraged by Netanyahu, who's now back in power in Israel. That's right. What, what is the Israeli position? If they didn't want the constraints of the JCPOA, they can't possibly think that not having any constraints whatsoever is a better situation. I, I just don't understand it. Yeah, you know, you talk to Israeli security experts, former intelligence officials and the like, and, and they all, um, almost all of them, said that this deal was was better for Israel's security than the alternative of no deal. Uh, but Netanyahu 
posits, you know, the JCPOA versus some ideal uh, deal that would have even more intrusive inspections, that would have uh, more limits on Iran's enrichment, you know, maybe no enrichment at all. And, you know, that the deal that he posits is it's impossible. So, you know, it's been called the unicorn deal. So what is what is what is Netanyahu's, um, you know, thinking? Maybe he maybe he thinks that uh, Israel will be able to take care of this through military means. First of all, maybe through sabotage and assassinations. They've done that, but that hasn't worked. So maybe ultimately he thinks it's got to be a military solution uh, to this. It's kind of the way that uh, former um, National Security Advisor John Bolton thinks he's written a couple different op-eds calling for military action against Iran's program as the only real way to stop it. But everybody knows that, you know, if you take military action, uh, yeah, you knock it out for a while. Maybe maybe you knock it out for two years, but Iran goes, builds it again underground somewhere, this time without any IEA inspectors. And and then you're back even worse off than you were a couple of years later. You've only gained a couple of years through military action. So that's not the answer. Well, Mark Fitzpatrick, I thank you for joining us, and I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ian. Glad to, glad to talk to you. And again, I've been speaking with Mark Fitzpatrick, who's an associate fellow for strategy, technology, and arms control, and the former executive director of the Washington-based America's Office of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, as well as former head of the Institute's work on nonproliferation. He served as a U.S. Foreign Service officer from 1979 to 2005, with postings in Seoul, Tokyo, Wellington, Vienna, and Washington, including as acting deputy assistant secretary for nonproliferation. And his books include Asia's Latent Nuclear Powers, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, Overcoming Pakistan's Nuclear Dangers, and the Iranian Nuclear Crisis, Avoiding Worst-Case Outcomes. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Bye.